Really good to be with you this morning and have the opportunity to uh, share in uh, leading God's word, opening God's word to us and thinking about a psalm which uh, I guess is really close to my heart. Uh, one of my favorites, just as Andrew was saying, that it's a favorite of his, uh, one of my favorites too, uh, because of its theme. And we'll dig into uh, some of the aspects of that theme as we go on. I've entitled it a new song, um, but perhaps I should have put a question mark, because as we'll see, as we go along, there's a sense in which it's new, and there's a sense in which it's not so new. I want to look at the question first of all, uh, what sort of world do we live in? Uh, And in a way, these themes are, are fairly familiar to us, but when we look at the world that we live in and how we analyze that world, let's look first at what we call the secular narrative. The secular narrative says that we don't need God, that actually there's no place for him. He's unnecessary. He's not there, so why on earth would we believe in him? And the secular narrative says that the world is getting better. Uh, Pour on more education, pour on more light, And the world will get better and better and better. Is that the world that we see? Is that what our experience is as we become more educated, as we become more advanced as a culture? Have our deepest desires been met? Have our deepest problems been addressed? The secular narrative says science will act. Science will explain everything. All of those questions that we still have about life, the universe, and everything, somewhere there's a scientific answer. The secular narrative says, or seems to say, that science is not just about addressing the how. At some point or other, it will tell us the why. But... What's the reality like? We live in a divided world. We live in a world where there's divisions of class. We live in a world where there's divisions of of wealth, where there's gender division, where there's racial divisions, where there's religious conflict. We live in a world where families are in crisis, where in the very heart of our homes there's division. And I think it's right to say that we live in an evil world. We don't have to look far, do we, to, to recognise that. And just as the BBC and, and maybe other media outlets would be scared of that word evil because of all that it suggests, when we look at what goes on in our world, it's a word that seems to describe what we see. So there's human trafficking, there's slavery, there's greed, there's anger. And there's me. There's me. And when I look at the problems of the world, I can't help but come back, can I, and look at myself and say, hey, lots of those problems are alive in some way in me. But then there's God's perspective on the world. And we're going to unpack that a little as we look at this psalm. Because we're part of a story that is a story that runs through human history. 
Our story says that God created a perfect world. Uh, And actually, what did we do? Mankind says, ah, we can run this better. And we decided to run it our way, and we screwed up. And ever since that point, our world, to some degree, has been screwed up. But God, in his mercy, from that point on, instigates a plan. A rescue plan. A rescue plan that sees us all given the opportunity to respond to Jesus and to be restored in relationship to the living God. And so we come to Psalm 96. So if you've got your Bibles, I'd love you to have them open with Psalm 96 uh, in front of you. Where does this fit into God's story? Always a good question when we come to Scripture to say, where does it fit in to the big picture? What we have recorded in Psalm 96 is very much like a song that David wrote, and he wrote it to celebrate something significant. He wrote it to celebrate the return of the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. You can read about that in in 1 Chronicles. Uh, I've got a picture up there of the Ark of the Covenant. So the psalm was written to celebrate a very special event in the life of the nation of Israel. Now, I'm sure it won't have passed most of you by that the World Cup is just around the corner. I've got the sense that there's not quite as much hype as there has been in the past, but we're on the cusp of another World Cup. And it's going to be ramped up, isn't it, in the weeks ahead. More and more and more World Cup. The world is about to go mad over men kicking a leather ball from one end of a field to another. Somehow we utterly lose perspective on what it is, don't we? And when the final whistle blows in the final game, there's one nation where there will be parties on the street. One nation in which people are, be, are going to be celebrating, getting very, very excited. This is Israel's party. This moment is an extraordinary party atmosphere as the visible symbol of God's presence is brought back into the heart of the nation, into the heart of God's people. It's a psalm of worship. So the ark was made according to instructions that were given to Moses. And God said, I want you to make a sanctuary in which I can dwell. So they build this fantastic gold box. Very clear instructions given on what it should be like. In the box are the stone tablets on which the law was written. And the cover of the box is called the atonement cover. And it was to travel with the people wherever they went. It reminded the people that God had given them a law and at the same time reminded them that there was a sacrificial system, the atonement cover, that there was atonement for them through the shedding of blood in sacrifices. There was a way back to God 
there was a way to be restored when you'd messed up, when you'd gone against what God had suggested and lived your way. So, let's dig into the psalm, having set that picture. Verse 1 and 2. It's a call to sing a new song. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, praise his name. Proclaim his salvation day after day. We said it's a song of celebration. It's a song of joy. It's a song of worship. It's a declaration of salvation. But is it a new song? So as Andrew's already mentioned, I had the privilege of being in the Albert Hall last Saturday. We'd gone along because we had a friend in in the choir. I just want you to picture the scene. If you've been to the Albert Hall, you'll get this really easily. It's a beautiful building, absolutely enormous. I think when it's full, about 8,000 people can get into it. And on this evening, it was just about full. Huge choir, huge orchestra. There's an organ, and we were right opposite the organ. When the organ plays, you are virtually lifted off your seat. It's an extraordinary sound that fills the place. So I'm there with this group of people who are expecting to sing, and my heart sinks when I realize what the first song is that we're supposed to sing together. The song was written in 1986. I'm going to avoid, if I can, mentioning what it was. Uh, And it was led on that evening by the person who wrote it. Now, I've been around for a while. Uh, I've seen lots of worship songs come and go. This particular worship song couldn't go fast enough for me. It was not ever one of my favorites. However, on that night in the Albert Hall, I had three young women sitting next to me. I had one slightly older woman and my wife sitting next to me on this side. Three young women sitting next to me. Uh, And they were Germans. I got into conversation with them. And it turns out that they'd come to the Albert Hall simply because they wanted to come to a concert in the Albert Hall. They weren't Christians. And they didn't actually know that this was a Christian concert. Do you know what? They loved the song. <laughs> the song that I cringed at, they loved. It was a lesson for me that my old song was their new song. A song they'd never heard. And actually, the whole of the evening spoke quite powerfully to them. They'd never been in an environment of worship. They'd never experienced what they experienced there. So in our psalm, I think there's something to be said for us recognizing that the song is new in two senses. It's a new song in that moment when it's sung by the people of Israel for the first time. Even though the themes of it are really familiar to Israel. And it's new too because this song of worship had not been sung before by the people who were invited to sing it. Let's just look at who's been invited to sing the song. Verse 1, sing to the Lord all the earth. Verse 7, ascribe to the Lord all you families of nations. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Verse 10, sing among the nations the Lord reigns. Verse 13, 
Let all creation rejoice before the Lord. And this happens again and again and again in Scripture, doesn't it? We're brought to this place of recognition. We're brought to this uh, mega theme in the Bible that God is simply not a God of Israel. He's the God of the whole earth. He's not a powerless parochial deity only interested in a few. He's the creator in whom the whole world, all of creation, must put its trust. So let's just pause uh, and ask how are we doing in singing this song of salvation? How are we doing in singing this song, in this song of salvation in the whole earth? It says, say, say among the nations, the Lord reigns. How are we getting on? Well, perhaps I can just illustrate uh, from the work that I'm involved in. Uh, and it's just one of many, many opportunities that are being taken around the world to declare amongst the nations the Lord reigns. So I, read, uh, I lead Friends International. If you're interested to learn a little more about it, there's some brochures that will be out on the table in the coffee area. Please uh, have a look at that. It's really, really encouraging when people come up to me and say, Dave, I've been praying about that. I recognize that's really important in your organization. Uh, I've been praying for you. Uh, yesterday, just yesterday, somebody came up to me at a meeting I was attending and said, I've been praying for that, Dave. Wow. That's really, really encouraging to know that people are standing with us in our ministry. So, a while ago, let me just tell you what the ministry is, perhaps if you don't know. It's reaching out to international students. There's thousands of international students in the UK uh, who come from all over the world. And we get the opportunity to share the good news of Jesus with them in both word and deed by caring for them and by sharing Jesus with them in word. So I was teaching at a, a conference in Berlin recently. Uh, it gathered together uh, people from all over Europe who were involved in ministry to international students. Half of the international students in the world are studying in Europe. Now this number of people who are future leaders who travel from their nation to another nation to study is increasing. It's just a factor of globalization. So through it, you get access to people who will be leading in culture, in politics, in business, in their nations in the years to come. So it's an extraordinary access that the ministry provides. So here we are with this group uh, from across Europe. The person leading the work in Belgium is a Dutchman who became involved in international student ministry after he'd studied in Mongolia. International student ministry in Poland is being led by an incredibly vibrant Nigerian woman. Australians are leading the work in Switzerland. Our globe, the way that we are working, globalization is having a phenomenal impact on mission. There were two Indians there. They'd never been to anything like this before. But they were convinced by the end of the conference that when they went back to India, they wanted to develop a ministry just like this locally. 
because they knew that they were international students studying in their institutions. And then over Easter, another conference, we had 200 international students, most of whom have become Christians since they arrived in the UK, being prepared to return home to live as Christians. That's 200 missionaries, people who were not involved in mission when they came to the UK, who will be involved in mission when they return to their home nations. People who haven't got to be trained in cross-cultural stuff, people who haven't got to learn a language, but people who can go back and engage immediately in mission to their people. Ad break. If you want to engage with this in some way, uh, we have a weekend very soon, uh, on 13th to 15th of June, where we are asking a few families to host international students here in Ipswich. So if you're interested in hosting one or two international students for a weekend, your responsibility is just B&B, then talk to Linda after the service. You could get people from anywhere in the world, and it will be fabulous, I can assure you. So, back to our psalm. As this incredible multinational choir sings salvation song we have to ask an obvious question. It's the same question that Andrew asks week on week. Why are people not joining my choir? Why are people not coming along? They are coming along. Why are there not more men coming along? (laughs) I think the psalmist points us to an answer there in verse 5. The gods of the nations are all idols, it says. The gods of the nations are all idols. So in the context of the psalm, the nations surrounding Israel had loads of different gods. They had the moon god, the sun god, the fire god. And those gods required sacrifices. But they were useless. Only one god had made the heavens. Only one god had real power. There's only one Lord, one true God. The others... So it was the worship of these idols that were keeping people from singing salvation song. The worship of these idols that were stopping those from the ends of the earth joining the choir. So what are the idols of this generation? What are the idols that are stopping people joining the choir now? I want you just to turn to uh, the person next to you and try and identify a couple of idols. Things that you think, that is what is stopping my neighbor, my friend, my colleague being interested in coming to hear about Christianity or in becoming a Christian. Just come up with a couple of things, a couple of minutes. So, here we are, part of this glorious choir, singing salvation song. We who are Christian are, uh, as we paint that picture in the psalm, we're the choir. We're singing this glorious song. 
but we're singing it to a group of people who've never heard. Some people are so caught up in their idols that they really, really don't want to listen, do they? Really don't want anything to do with us. They're maybe put off by something they see. Sometimes I think they look at the church and think we're incredibly trite and insignificant. And we're very, very misunderstood in our culture. There are some people who are determinedly atheistic and want nothing to do with people who they feel have to lean on some imaginary God. They're out there. All we can do is simply live a life of faith before them. There's some people who like the music that we sing, but they don't like the lyrics of the music. They're happy to be amongst us, but actually, when God makes any demands on their life, they run from it. I'm happy for the fun bit, but the obedience bit, hey, that's not me. I don't want to obey a holy God. Well, hey, that doesn't work, does it? Our faith requires obedience. And then there are some who are just waiting to be asked to join the choir. Just waiting for you to invite them to join in the song of salvation. I remember, this was probably 15 years ago, maybe a little longer. My dad was still alive. My dad was a great singer. Uh, I used to sing regularly in choirs. Andrew, you heard that. Um, And we were in St. David's Hall in a a massive concert that was going on there. Uh, And my dad wasn't walking with Jesus. He was a stubborn man. Uh, But I remember standing next to him and singing, crown him with many crowns. My heart exploded. Here I was next to my dad, singing, crown him with many crowns. I could hear him singing it at the top of his voice. He came to Jesus in the end. But that moment... That was a moment of invitation. A powerful moment of invitation. The living God saying to him, for goodness sake, man, come to me. This is where truth is to be found. This is where real life is. Crown him with many crowns. The lamb upon the throne. We can bring people into this place And our life becomes an invitation. The psalmist says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. The German girls came along to the Albert Hall and they tasted and they saw that the Lord is good. See, our call is to sing salvation song amongst everyone who's never heard. God's mission to all people Everywhere. It goes from here to the ends of the earth. And you can be sure wherever there is a community of God's people, there will be people who are being called 
to go. To go to the end of the street and to go to the ends of the world. And I think a challenge that we need to hear regularly, a question we need to just have asked regularly, is, am I saying, I'll go, Lord, send me, wherever, wherever you want me to go? Or am I living a boundaried Christian life that says, actually, I want it on my terms? Are we simply saying before God, I'll go and do whatever and at what cost? So as we close, let's just notice something that I think is of great importance, particularly as we come to communion. See, the psalm encourages the worshippers to have confidence in God as the righteous judge of all people. Verse 10 and verse 13. Why should we have confidence in this God who judges? Especially when we know how flawed and fallen we are. Why should I stand with any confidence before a judge? Let's wind back to verse 2. We can have confidence in God's judgment because before he judges, he saves. Before he judges, he saves. See, Israel had a praise party as the ark was brought into Jerusalem. A party to celebrate their salvation. Today we have a more solemn remembrance as we break bread and as we drink the wine together. And as we reflect on Christ's once and for all sacrifice for us, that ultimate sacrifice for the whole world, let's remember that that sacrifice has won the whole world. Anyone who chooses to respond anywhere on earth, eternal freedom. An eternity in the presence of the living God where, well, the party's going to be fantastic. It is going to be fantastic. And you're joyful that you want to be there. Sorry, you're joyful that you are there. You want other people to be there, don't you? You want everybody to be worshipping with you, don't you? That's the Holy Spirit's work within us. That we want to draw everyone into relationship with our living God.